0: Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. In this episode, I speak with popular YouTuber, media entrepreneur, and political commentator Kim Iverson, also former co-host of The Hill Rising. Now, Kim is no longer a co-host of The Hill Rising, owing to a controversy involving an interview that aired on the program featuring uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Kim was the network's leading critic of our COVID response, and yet she was suspiciously absent from that episode, leading her to resign in protest. You'll hear a bit more about that shortly. Kim Iverson is a close friend of mine, I should say. She's a populist progressive who outrages many progressives, sort of how I'm looked at by some on the right as a squishy establishment Republican who some conservatives don't care for. Oh, well, I can't please everyone. But Kim and I both agree on the need for representatives of our political and public health establishment to engage their critics and not hide from the American people. At Braver Angels, we have sought to bring such leaders to the American people directly. And you'll get a taste of that in this episode as we cut away from our talk with Kim for a moment to bring you an excerpt of a Braver Angels debate event with Dr. Francis Collins, President Biden's chief science advisor and former head of the NIH. In talking about Dr. Fauci, however, as well as Kim's disdain for our COVID response, the Great Resets, and other things, it's the establishment versus populist paradigm itself that I sought to engage Kim on most in this episode. Populism, whether left or right, is a concern to many observers. But I do think that within the populist spirit of American politics, we can actually find clues to some of the common ground that can actually unite us in a way that transcends left and right. There are a lot of things that make me say that. You'll hear us give voice to some of it in this discussion. But here's an anecdote that illustrates the point. I have a friend and mentor named Harry Boyd. Harry is a professor of public work at Augsburg University. His father was the only white man on the board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And as a teenager, he worked on the ground organizing poor whites in the South for Dr. King. In the spring of 64, while helping organize a citizenship school in St. Augustine, Florida, now the citizenship schools were where many of the foot soldiers of the movement were brought up in civics and nonviolence, he visited a fellow civil rights organizer who had been jailed just outside of town. When Harry had stepped out of the jail, however, he found himself surrounded by a half dozen members of the Ku Klux Klan. They accused him of being a Yankee and a communist, to which Harry responded by saying, You got all that wrong. I love black Americans and Southerners, but I ain't no communist. I'm a populist. I believe that y'all are being used. You're being tricked by the big shots. You should be on our side. Harry had frozen them in their tracks. He didn't expect him to say that. The leader of the small band thumbed the straps of his overalls for a moment and finally responded by saying something like, there's something in that. (laughs) I don't think those KKK members joined the civil rights movement, but they did let Harry go on his way. So why do I bring up that story? And Dr. King died trying to bring together poor white and black people in this country. And today, in our time, as far apart as we see BLM and MAGAs being politically, it nevertheless remains the fact that black and white, urban and rural, people who feel themselves locked out of the American dream, ought to be able to see more that they can empathize with in each other's experiences than our polarized environment generally allows for them to see. We can't settle for shared resentments of the establishment as a bridge to unity, of course. But recognizing similar experiences and common interests is a start. And maybe populism can help us get that ball rolling. In any event, I was grateful for this conversation with my dear friend Kim, and I'm grateful that you get to hear it. So without further ado, Kim Iverson. Welcome to Uniting America with John Wood Jr.
1: Good to be here trying to unite America. Yeah. We'll do our best. We'll do our best. We'll see how we (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, so I'm excited about this for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you are my inaugural guest in studio anyway. We'll see when this actually sort of happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, what an honor. Yeah, well be the first well right in to Unite America. Right. And, you know, I felt, I felt good about that because I, you know, I, you and I are at this point kind of, kind of old friends. You yeah. Know?
2: Yeah.
1: I, I, at what point is it classified as old friends? Like, is it because we're old? No, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I meant. I have no idea how
0: long we've been friends. Yeah. We're just old right. people who happen to be friends.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. So we yeah. are old friends. Yes. Yeah,
0: that's right. And so, you know, I mean the, you know, there's a little bit of a vision behind, uh, this this podcast, and it is to sort of have deep conversations that explore sort of like deep fault lines in American society, in American politics, but to emerge as friends at the end of it, if at all possible, right? And so, so well, see, we
1: might end up enemies at the end of this, but no, true. no, we it, won't.
0: It, it of might, course, it not. Might backfire, but I feel like we've got a pretty good record. Yeah, you know, the friendship's going pretty strong.
1: It is, so. and we've always known we're we're politically a bit different, so mm. I, yeah. we, we've been able to manage through that. So far, yeah. so far, yeah, we'll put it to the test, yeah. And you even married me. I did. Yeah, not did. like in the way, you know, not in the way mm-hmm. of, not not that we're married.
0: No, no, <laughs> no, but it's nice to let the confusion linger for a second. Yeah. No, we, uh, I presided. Yes, over, you're over the Kalonis officiant
1: since. at my wedding, yes. Yeah, I was, Thank I was. you, very, mm-hmm. very excellent, uh, beautiful <laughs> <laughs> wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You did now, a fantastic job. Now I got a whole side career available.
2: That's right, if right,
3: so.
1: you want to be an, I, I will <laughs> attest to your mm-hmm. abilities as being an officiant and your children as well, if I told you if you wanted to have them be professional <laughs> mm-hmm. uh ring bears and flower girls, yeah, and you've yeah. got an entire industry mm-hmm. within your family <laughs> yeah, definitely I'm hiring
0: them out as weddings yeah kids, your wife is as a bridesmaid,
1: speak. it was my bridesmaid, so yeah the mm-hmm. whole the whole family should be mm-hmm. in a catalog yeah,
0: yeah yeah there there you go so now that now that the the wood iverson family you know uniting uh, is has been has been clarified, yes. Here. Um, let's get to something that I think is deep division in, in American political life. Well, actually, let me put it to you this way. I wanted to have you on to talk about something that I think doesn't always announce itself as the sort of most salient division in American political society, but I think that you could easily argue that it is. Uh, Most of the time we go to thinking about the right left divide, we might go to thinking about the sort of left, a black-white divide, racial divisions, maybe religion, secular, so on and so forth. Um, but I think that you can easily argue that there is sort of a populist establishment divide yes. in American politics that transcends party in some serious way. At this point in time, yeah. So I want us to get into that subject. But before we do, I do want to know, you know, one, do you agree with that assessment? It sounds like you do. And two... Where do you see yourself in that kind of, you know, spectrum of things? Because I was interested in having you talk to the subject, because I think a lot of people sort of look at you as look at you as a populist. Yeah. I'm wondering if that label sits right with you and just sort of how you would describe that divide.
1: Yeah. um, I I mean, I do consider myself a populist. I've come from traditionally the left end of the Mm -hmm. spectrum. I would consider myself an independent at this point. Uh, I do think that the greatest divide right now in America is actually that populist establishment divide without people really realizing it. I think a lot of people haven't been able to quite um, label it. They don't fully understand. You know, they they don't know it's the populist establishment. They just know there are people they agree with and people they don't agree with. And it's Mm -hmm. and they're not they, they haven't been able to categorize it quite yet. I think most people you're right think about things from a left right perspective. But a lot of people right now are becoming very confused because they're hearing people from the other side of the aisle that are echoing many of their same sentiments. So they're thinking, wait a minute, but I always thought I disagreed with Republicans. But now here I am agreeing with Sarah Palin that Julian Assange should be given complete, uh, that he should be completely pardoned, that they should just he doesn't even need to be pardoned. They should just drop the charges against him. They should just let him you know free Assange. That's something that even now Sarah Palin is saying. And she is somebody who is a Republican, somebody who I never really agreed with in other aspects, but suddenly I find myself agreeing with her. I find myself agreeing with people like Matt Gates on similar issues when it comes to Snowden and Assange, when it comes to the establishment war, anti-war positions. Mm. Um, you know, somebody, for, for myself, somebody who's always been, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, mm. came from, you know, I was I, the only party I really ever registered for was Green Party. I was never mm. a Democrat or anything, okay. but but I would yes. vote mostly Democrat if I were to vote. Um, That changed. That's completely changed at this point. I don't think I'll vote for a single Democrat at this Mm -hmm. point going forward for a a long time. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I do think that there is this divide that is more populist versus the establishment. And the establishment is, I think, using a lot of the um, a lot of cultural issues to try to divide us to get us to to remain distracted on that populist versus the establishment, because that really is you know, the establishment is like the old guard. I want to say like the the modern or a new age monarchy in a way mm-hmm. where it's we've got these elites and they're running the system. They're running the show. They give us this sense of a democracy. But in the end, we're not really deciding on a lot of the biggest, most important things that we should be deciding on, like war, for example, that is supposed to be something that we the people delegate Congress to vote on. They haven't they don't declare war anymore. They find every other way to go around it. And so they never have to actually cast a vote and then be held accountable to the people.
0: Well, let me pause you there just to just to ask you in the interest of clarity, are there any meaningful differences between, let's say, the establishment left and right or, you know, populist movements left and right? Trying to get it sort of right. like how relevant our terms are. So, I mean, is there mean, n- n- not meaningful differences between, let's say, Hillary Clinton and, and Mitt Romney on, on the one hand or between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump on the other?
1: Uh, you know, I, I, the differences are minor. They're not mm. as major as people think they are. Certainly, I would say the difference between the populists and the establishment is much greater than mm. the difference yeah. between right and left populists with each other. Or the difference between right and left establishment with one another; mm. uh, those are minor differences. I would say that on the establishment side of things, the left-right establishment between Mitt Romney or Hillary Clinton, I have a difficult time figuring out where they actually are different. Fiscally, maybe a bit a bit different. Mm. You know, Hillary Clinton will maybe vote for more more programs mm. for the people with a lot of earmarks for her donors. Um, and Mitt Romney might vote against that because he doesn't want to spend money. So there's a bit of a fiscal difference between the two. Mm. But when it comes to military conflict, there's no different. What's there's no difference when it comes to foreign policy. There's no real difference. Um, you know, as much as they try to play against each other on the culture war, and they say, mm. you know, one side says, well, the other one's a racist, and the other one says, well, no, the you know, they're the real racists. I mean, everybody kind of slings right. this back and forth at one another. And I'm not 100 percent certain there's a huge difference Mm -hmm. except for just what they claim the other one is.
0: Now, is that because in your point of view and maybe maybe others that the interests that stand behind sort of the establishment factions are themselves more or less the same? Is is, does does the idea that there's sort of an establishment that transcends party rest Mm -hmm. upon the idea that the thing that sort of unites them in an invisible way, so to speak? Mm -hmm. is perhaps corporate interests well there's certainly
1: a lot of that yeah I mean when you look at Big Pharma for example and the military-industrial complex they Mm -hmm. bought off both parties almost Mm -hmm. equally at this point there was a time when they weren't there was a time when Big Pharma spent way more money on democ on on, uh, Republicans than on Democrats but now they actually spend more money on Democrats than they do on Republicans same thing with the military-industrial complex it used to be way more Republicans but now it's shifted so certainly, the I, I think that has been the, the difference. I think there was a time when maybe the Democratic Party was a bit more populist. And there was a time in history when the Republican Party was more populist back when you go back to um, Teddy Roosevelt's era. But through time, the big corporate interests have been able to buy off both sides pretty equally. I mean, there are some differences. Like, of course, you've got Planned Parenthood buying off the Democrats way more so than NRA buying off Republicans, right? Mm. They don't give any money to Democrats, the NRA. Uh, Planned Parenthood doesn't give any to Republicans, or or if it is, it's very minor. I don't think there is any, though. But so you've got these, like, culture war issues that are definitely keeping those two establishment sides divided. Mm. But beyond that, fundamentally, they're exactly the same in every other way. They do just vote a little bit differently fiscally. Mm. Obviously, Republicans tend to be more for states' rights. They want things done on the state level. Democrats want things done on on a federal level. But... A lot of the stuff on a day to day, the things that people care about, they end up being the exact same, and nothing really fundamentally changes.
0: Well, let's hit the populist side of this now, because surely there's got to be real differences between, you know, the 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 movement forces that uh, Bernie Sanders represented, and, and you said that you were Bernie Sanders uh, yeah. supporter uh, versus what Donald Trump represented, or or our Not member, really. right? uh, are no. they right? Oh, okay, it, now that sounds like a spicy take. To yeah. You it's, somehow, right? Well, I mean, well, explain, explain that to me. Then.
1: You've got a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters who voted for Donald Trump. Right. You know, when it was Hillary Clinton and Trump, they they voted for Trump mm-hmm. because they actually said many of the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, Trump obviously says them in a crass way. That is, you know, mm-hmm. he has no manners. <laughs> uh, but really, they're fundamentally saying very similar things. I mean, Bernie Sanders was also not for open immigration. He was saying that we need to we need to keep things controlled because we're trying to raise wages in this country. Mm-hmm. And if you keep importing in low wage workers. That kills the opportunity for workers in this country to raise their wages. So Bernie Sanders wasn't for the open border policy. Donald Trump kept saying build a wall. But they're saying Mm -hmm. the same thing, essentially, Mm -hmm. for the same fundamental reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're both saying we need to keep America for Americans and all the benefits of America for Americans. And we need Mm -hmm. to strengthen that. When you look at um, foreign policy, they were both, let's end the wars. Let's focus on America. They were both very much, let's focus on America. And focus on the American people. Mm-hmm. When you talk about, um, I, I mean, pretty much, you know, free speech and um, going against the, uh, the the deep state. I mean, they're both very much in that line of thinking. So there really isn't a ton of differences. I mean, you've got again, you know, some of the fiscal differences. Like you've mm-hmm. got Bernie Sanders saying he wants Medicare for all. That was his big, you know, key um, key platform position, but Tr- and, and that was something that Trump wasn't. That wasn't his key platform position, but he didn't necessarily, uh, he didn't disagree clearly with lowering the cost of medical, of medical, um, uh, of everything. I mean, in fact, under his presidency is when they made it to where there had to be transparency in the costs of medical. So mm-hmm. if you were to, you know, they need to tell you how much procedures are going to cost in advance. You should be able to call, you need to see priceless right. under his presidency price lists are now made available for your procedures and medicines under his presidency it was deregulated that you would be able to import drugs from other countries mm. so there was a concerted effort from the trump campaign to also lower the cost of medical in unconventional ways that were against the establishment that's the difference because mm. trump wanting to import drugs from canada let's say and allow that to happen mm. That was against what the medical big pharma wanted. They want to control the prices here in the United States. They don't want you to be able to get medicines for cheap out of Canada. Mm. Now, Bernie Sanders might say, now he was doing that, he was for that as well, but Bernie wants the cost of actual medicines in the United States to lower by by saying, we need to be, have uh, allow the government to negotiate mm. the drug prices, right? right. Mm. Um, so they both were going for those lower drug prices, mm. just in slightly different ways of doing it. However... They were both against the establishment on that. The establishment did not want that. They wanted to control the prices themselves. They wanna be able to price gouge you. That's what their goal is, and that's what their donors are paying uh, all of these politicians to continue to vote for.
0: Now, would left and right uh, populists have a difference of opinion on this healthcare subject in particular? In terms of you know which side's approach really does represent sort of a, a selling out to some form of an establishment. So in other words, you know uh, one thing that I think is true about not just uh, you know Donald Trump but also you know just Republican politicians in general is that they reject the notion of universal health or at least single payer healthcare, right? And I think that for many folks on the right, there's a sense that well that's giving all the power to the government, right, to the federal government, and that's right. something to be pushed back against. Whereas, you know, I would imagine, you know, Bernie Sanders or we know Bernie Sanders and folks on the left would tend to say that anything short of that is some kind of a capitulation to the corporate, to big pharma, but also to just sort of the corporate healthcare care industry uh, in, in general. Is that not a fundamental sort of division between populists on the left and right? Or do you see that as less relevant than some of the other things?
1: I think that the left side of that has shifted a bit uh, mm. after the pandemic. Mm. So I would say that. That that was absolutely the big fundamental divide is that one side would say, I don't want the government to fully control. I want there to be options. That's why the big question in every single presidential debate kept being, um, would you eliminate private insurance? They kept asking mm-hmm. that. Would you eliminate it? Right, right. Giving people no option other than the government controlled health care. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was a big concern for the populace more on the right. They wanted the Medicare for all option. I mean, most Americans do believe that there should be some form of medical for everybody. But the divide is, like you just mentioned, on the left, more people say, get rid of the industry entirely because they will always find their way in. They will always figure out a way to undercut the system Mm. and to bring it back to the way they want. And the other side says, I don't want to eliminate my options of private insurance. Mm. Right. I want to be able to have it kind of like schools. You have the option of sending your kid to a public school, but you also have the choice of sending them to a private school if you're willing to pay for it. Right. So. I do think that has been a fundamental divide on that particular issue. But I do think that on the left, the populace on the left, the true populace have also shifted their mentality on that a bit mm. since the pandemic because they've seen what government control of medical looks like. Uh, and that is scary to many of us. So I've even switched my position on that where, although I was never for eradicating private, but even now more so, I definitely don't think the government should be in 100% control over healthcare. Mm. But there is a way to ensure and I think most Americans want to figure out a way to ensure everybody has medical care.
0: Right okay well let's let's keep going with the analysis here a bit because there are a couple of other facets of this that I'm curious to to get you to to to, to dig into a little bit. Um. So when we talk about the establishment it seems to me that obviously that's a big blanket term. Yeah. And it seems like there are components of what is meant by that that are specifically captured by some other terms that I think folks have a difficult time wrestling with um one of them is this phrase deep state right and so you know steve bannon uh who was what he was president trump's uh first one of his early was it campaign managers or campaign yeah. strategists and then strategist he, yeah he went into the white house with trump for a period of time and since then bannon has been at the center of any number of strat- uh, controversies yeah. i guess maybe behind bars at some point here um but uh bannon said early on that uh while he was still in the administration that every day was going to be a fight to quote deconstruct the administrative state um with the idea being that there are these entrenched classes of bureaucrats and civil servants and so forth whose job it is to sort of hold in place the interests i guess you know of the establishment but i mean meaning you know what any number of of things i mean you know certainly the FBI and the intelligence services, uh, you know, major uh, uh, government uh, uh, agencies and so forth, and that they are resistant, I guess, to the will of the American people. Um, let's start with the, and so so that's, that's one. The other thing I want to get to in a moment is the idea of there being sort of a global or globalist establishment, because right. we hear a lot about globalism, the globalists, and on your on your show, you've talked a lot about sort of the World Economic Forum. I think you and not just you on the left, folks, particularly I think of Glenn Beck and others on the right, are very concerned about the Great Reset and all these things. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to uh, hit these things, uh, but starting with the deep state and the sort of bureaucratic, uh, the the inner bureaucratic kind of you know reality of the right. American government. Do folks on the left and the right both perceive? this as as an issue and how do you understand the idea of the deep state do you yeah, agree the, with it
1: the populist sides for sure mm-hmm. not the establishment sides yeah, the establishment exactly. sides think mm-hmm. it's all a bunch of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. um, but those of us on the populist side of both both left and right absolutely are mm-hmm. concerned about the i mean what would i guess be called the deep state which is essentially mm-hmm. um there's many layers to what that term would would mean So on one level, you, of course, do have your day to day government working bureaucrats, right? Mm. You've got the people that they're unelected people. They work behind the scenes. They work through administration after administration after administration. They don't change. Mm. And those people, like all people, human nature is to not like change. Nobody likes change. (laughs) So even when a new administration comes in, what you've got is a resistance that naturally is there, not in the same, and I don't mean resistance like the resistance against Trump or anything, but Mm -hmm. there is a natural resistance of any employee when they get a new boss to Mm -hmm. change, right? right? And especially when you have to change every four years, it becomes, people just don't, they Mm -hmm. just don't want their, this is the way it's been done. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. We're not going to actually change things. So you do have like the bureaucratic forces that are working against every single president that comes in, whether they be coming from the left or the right. Anybody who wants to make significant change is gonna be up against a wall of resistance from people that just don't like change. Mm-hmm. But I think really the deep state more so is referring to the big corporate interests that are controlling the actual, what should be democratic lovers of society. So rather than we the people making decisions on what we want and our politicians, our representatives voting in the way that we want, they instead vote the way their big money interests want. Mm -hmm. So there is this unelected, this other unelected, way more influential than your average Joe working nine to five in the, you know, in D.C., um, an extremely influential body that is Fundamentally controlling the government mm. because these government officials are not voting; they're not representing the people. They're representing their donors, mm. and that is something that populists on the left and the right care about. In fact, uh, on the left more so. That has been a concern coming from the progressive left for the for for a much longer time. Bernie Sanders being really the catalyst of do not accept big money money, mm. uh, no you know large corporate donors to his campaigns small small dollar donations only that is then crept over to the right you do have some republicans also shunning um corporate PAC money like Mm. matt gates um you've got um i want to ken buck i want to say his last name is from colorado a rep from colorado Mm. so you've got these various um you know on both sides starting to just say we've got to get rid of the big money interest we have to represent the people but that is not a popular position. Surprisingly, mm. even though it seems like it should be the most popular of the positions. Mm. So mm. that would be the deep state. It's this, it's the the big money interests that are really truly the ones behind the scenes controlling our politicians, controlling policy. They're helping write the policy. Mm. They're actually bringing in their own advisors to help craft, uh, you know, the, the policy that should be for the people, so.
0: Now special interest driven politics is, not necessarily uh, a new thing, but you're saying that the deep state it sort of is this set of interests or is it this set of interests combined yeah. with the fact that you have these career civil servants who are basically sort of in position for, you know, for extended periods of time in a way to where they are the beneficiaries of that. And that's the relationship that endures, right? So, you know, you yeah. talk about, you know, the president of the United States. Sometimes you'll hear people who are like, you know, staffers or folks who are like, you know, n- not people who are political appointees but who are there for a long period of time, say you refer to them as like the seasonal help elected officials because there's turnover there. Yeah. And so forth, right? Um but um so it's it's is it sort of just an inevitable consequence of the idea that people who are unelected are more closely bound to the institutions than they are to sort of the the checks and balances of actual voters is that the fundamental problem
1: I mean I would say that the the you know the day-to-day working bureaucrat is not necessarily the, it, they're not as much of the deep state mm. as the larger more influential controlling features of mm. the the donors and the the policymakers so I would yeah. say there is certainly you know the careerist is certainly a problem but not it, it depends on the level of that careerist mm. so there are some that are, um, you know, high level that have been working through various administrations like Antony Blinken, for example, right? So he mm-hmm. was the undersecretary of state during the Obama administration and now he's the secretary of state in the Biden administration. Yeah. So we see this revolving door and what did he do in the meantime? You know, he went and he started West Exec Advisors, which is um, an advisory firm mm-hmm. to help with the, the military industrial complex and, okay. you know, big money interests there. So. So the
0: revolving it's door, a revolving between, door. The, between the government, between these various you know agencies, and and the moneyed interest. thats right. where the deep state comes in. In your in your view,
1: here. yeah, yeah, we're not getting fresh people in there. Everybody's got a money interest. The people that are working inside of the government now are thinking of their next move in four years mm-hmm. when they're getting fired. Got it. Uh, You know, somebody else gets elected, they got to go. Where do they go? They go lobby. They mm-hmm. go lobby for these organizations. So it's not just members of Congress that go to K Street. It's also their Staff okay. that go to Case Street, right. and then those staff come back and work on on the Hill, and it's this revolving door of mm-hmm. yeah, the big money interest, and everybody looking out for their next career move. Got it. And okay. these people are getting wealthy off of it.
0: So that starts to fill it out for me a bit more. Here, can 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 you connect that to this other piece, which I find interesting, which is sort of the globalist kind of piece? So I think that I think that for many folks, I, I hear this. You know, I I hear. So much of this on the left and the right about the establishment in general and things that I mean, I hear the term deep state, I think more on the right, but I hear a lot of things on the left that seem to be pointing in the same direction. Yeah. Um, On the right, at least, I certainly get the I certainly hear people talking about sort of. I mean, I, I think we all kind of like got familiar with the phrase like "new world order," you know, kind right. of a while back, and so forth. it has got like this Illuminati ring to it, and so forth. It seems that but, way, but but, yeah. but 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 so many people really are concerned about uh, something that right now is is well. There's a particular phrase that sort of in vogue at the moment called the Great Reset, which comes out of. Conversations taking place at the world economic forum.
1: Well, they call it the great reset. Yeah, right, they call, yeah, it, call yeah. it the great reset. They have an right? entire website dedicated well, right, to right, it.
0: Right, right, precisely. Uh, and now that that but that phrase is now being understood as sort of an agenda of sort of international elites um you know at the forum but I think manifest in in other places. Um aimed at fundamentally fundamentally transforming the ways in which Sort of political and economic society work and that you know perhaps entities like you know the, the folks at uh, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, uh, and high-level international politicians are taking advantage of current crises, particularly you know, the pandemic, through policies like lockdowns and so forth to begin to sort of re-engineer the way uh, global society works in general, and certainly sort of, you know, uh, Western industrialized society and and, and American society. Um, One, I'm curious to know, like, is that a reasonable kind of high-level description of what people perceive? And second, do you you see there as being sort of a global kind of establishment that we should be concerned about in, in this way?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's the same. And does that
0: make you a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist?
1: I, uh, yeah, well, people call me that. So, I <laughs> <Okay>. mean, <laughs> uh, you know, even though it's mm-hmm. flat out said by the World mm-hmm. Economic Forum, I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they proudly proclaim this this stuff. They actually say you will own nothing and you will be happy. Mm. They actually say you will own nothing, you will have no privacy Mm. and you will have never been happier. They flat out say that. That is not something that, I mean, you could go through the World Economic uh, Forum's Twitter account and find those phrases. You can read articles that are published in Forbes and in other places where they detail this out of what that would look like in the year. They project like 2030 or 2035 Mm. where you will own nothing and you will be happy and you'll be monitored by uh, whoever, you know, you'll, you won't you will have privacy, you will be monitored and it'll all be okay. Everything will be fine. Just do what you need to do. Just, you know, don't go against the government and everything will be just fine. <laughs> they don't quite say that last phrase, but they say everything else mm. very blatantly to our faces. So they're not hiding this. This is not a conspiracy theory. They tell us mm. and they're saying what their goal is, what their stated goal is to create basically one world government mm. where rather than us being divided it would be similar to the United States, mm. but United Nations in a way, right, mm. where it's united countries coming together and there is one governing body and all of the people in the entire world live by the same set of rules. And I think that this kind of stemmed from, and this is where you get into the, you know, the conspiracy theories of population control because this um or depopulation because really what this kind of stemmed from was the rapid increasing of the global population. I think in my, when I was calculating it out, I think in my dad's lifetime alone, so he's like 75 years old, I think the world population has tripled since he was born, mm. the global population. I mean, that's yeah. that's in one person's lifetime, that's, we're, we're breeding like rabbits, right? I mean, we're mm. really um increasing. And so there is definitely a concern by some that when you get, too great of a population is too difficult to control mm. right too too difficult to keep order when there's too many people involved they could rise up and they can easily overtake you right <laughs> so they can they can overthrow you so there is this sort of idea that we've got to get everything under control we've got to we've got to maintain order as we increase this massive population mm. Okay. And in some people then think or maybe even lower the population. Is it
0: kind of ironic because we're talking about, I mean, when we're talking about sort of the, the World Economic Forum in particular, you're talking about a gathering of very wealthy people in general. Right?
1: Well, um, yeah, many of them are very, you know, the, the people that are invited to Davos are mm. extremely wealthy technocrats, mm. oligarchs, and uh, politicians mm. who may or may not be wealthy. Right. And if they're not wealthy now, they will be wealthy later. I mean, that's kind of mm. usually how it works in politics, unfortunately. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of High level people that are, uh, you know, you've got people in positions of power that are, that are, you know, Justin Trudeau's of the world. Mm. Um, you know, the people, uh, J- uh, Jacinda Arden down in New Zealand, very much involved in the World Economic Forum. And they're people in positions of leadership. And then they're mingling and they're mixing with the people who have all the, pa- who have all the money. So you've got the power of the government mixed with the money people. They get together and. They, um they're in a club and it's a very big club that is running much of the Western world and they have an agenda. And that agenda is that they want to reconfigure the way our society looks, the way we consume, the way we interact, the way we interact on a global level. So they, and they're very blatant about their agenda. They don't, they, they want it to be where we don't own anything but the corporations own everything and then we just rent everything from the corporations. Um, you know, they, they do have this concerted agenda or, or, you know, I think a fair assessment is that a lot of people point towards communism and say that it's really kind of going more towards a communist model Mm -hmm. or like the China model.
0: Is this international socialism? Is that more or less what it boils down to? I mean, or is I, I. Something a little bit more yeah, I wouldn't use those, than that. Ter-
1: yeah, it's more new. I wouldn't use those terms necessarily. Like, you know, it's not really communism or socialism. It's not either of those things, but it's something that would be akin to it in that you don't personally own anything. Everything is rented to you or borrowed, um, mostly rented to you. And it is owned, though, by technocrats mostly. Okay. And well, they don't really specify, to be honest, who owns it, but you could just kind of assume it must be the technocrats like Jeff Bezos of the world mm. that are already running so much of it.
0: Got it. OK, well, let's let's tie this to some particular areas of concern, including one where your outspokenness has, I think, you know, and in in, um, in ways that many of your fans, I think all your fans at this point will be you know, somewhat familiar with. Uh, has maybe landed you in the hot seat and to have some high-level disagreements uh, with uh, with an employer of yours. So, you know, one thing that you are very much known for is, I think, you know, pretty scathing criticisms of the, of the United States and also, I think, the state of California in particular, where we both happen to be, uh, response uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, so you've laid out for us you know, you've helped us to understand sort of how not just you, but but many Americans, left and right, sort of perceive kind of the larger, um, you know, establishment domestically and internationally, and yeah. sort of the agendas that maybe come 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 through that. Um, but I think that you know, in in your view, that really cashed out perhaps in the way some uh, elected officials and politicians maybe seem to take advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns. Um, I, I want to talk about different facets of that, but I think that one thing I want to draw attention to here is, I think, not just your concern, but the concern of many right and left, which is that part of the way people in power operate is to want to silence dissent, mm-hmm. right? To want to not have certain conversations that, that need to be had. And so you've been a big critic of Dr. Anthony, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, of course, you know, sort of the the, the leading uh, public health uh, authority in the United States, with whom we associate, sort of, you know, the public response to, you know, to to the COVID nineteen pandemic most most visibly. And um, so, you know, you were a prominent voice uh, on a program called The Hill Rising, yeah. Um, which, you know, and and you guys had a, had a great show there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, strong following. And Dr. Fauci uh, was recently interviewed uh on the hill um uh, and yet Kim iverson was sort of absent from that um, conversation Do you want to recap that just just a little bit here
1: yeah i you know as you mentioned um that was what i mostly i i was the the one on the show that had covered COVID mm-hmm. the most right definitely was me i battled my co-hosts on a regular basis publicly for the world to see mm-hmm. uh where i would say that you know that the vaccines don't stop the spread or you know a variety of things that Were considered insane that now everybody says, okay, yeah, yeah, (laughs) it is Mm -hmm. what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's kind of common knowledge Um, and definitely criticized Fauci, definitely criticized responses. Um, And when uh, an an interview with Fauci was booked, I found out about it and I was then told by the producers that I was being excluded from that interview. Mm. Uh, So that definitely, uh, you know, I had spent a year on that show. I left my, didn't leave totally my independent show that I had going, but definitely put a big pause on it and was, was working on the hills rising. And, um, yeah, I told my followers prior to joining that program that even though it was corporate media, that I was not going to be controlled by corporate media, that yes, I was going back to the big mean machine of corporate, but Mm -hmm that they were allowing me to say what I wanted to say, that they were not holding me back. And so as long as that was the continued, so as long as that w- that continued, then I would stick around. Mm. And th- that was true for the most, really, they never held me back. I never, no one ever um censored my radars or told me what, I didn't have to run by my topics by anybody, I just did what I, as long as I could back it up with facts, I was free to say what I wanted to say.
2: Mm.
1: But, um when they decided to exclude me from the Fauci interview was when unfortunately I said this would be reputationally ruining for me to stick around
2: mm-hmm.
1: after being excluded from this. When I've told everybody for a year, I wasn't going to be limited or censored or held back in any way. Mm-hmm. And this will not only kill my reputation if I stuck around after this, but it, it this is also going to kill yours because, mm-hmm. um, the audience is not stupid and they're going to see that you're, you know, your main, um, anchor at this point is missing from this interview (laughs) you
0: know and people people were were definitely upset I read the I read the Twitter Twitter comments yeah 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 yeah.
1: I mean people caught on before I even said anything I mean everybody in the comment section was like where normally they would say in segments if I was missing where's Kim that was pretty Mm -hmm. normal but in this one they they were saying how dare you how dare you do Mm -hmm. this to Kim? Like, how? how, even in the comments, people were saying, how could Kim possibly come back after this? Mm. And they were right. What they didn't know was I had already told the company, you've put me in a position where I can't come back,
2: Mm. you know?
1: And so I I asked them not to do it. They had every opportunity to not go forward with that interview the day before, the day of, the morning of. They then conducted the interview. They didn't post it for another two hours. I begged them not to do it. I told them what the consequences would have to be that I would have no choice but to leave and they they proceeded to do it anyway so they had every opportunity to to not make that big mistake.
0: Now, now would you say that that's part of a larger pattern is there sort of because you'll certainly have you know many folks you know many and again this is this is this is right and left I think the terminology is different on the right you'll have a lot of people complaining about the mainstream media not wanting to you know touch certain popular you know usually sort of democratic politicians but then you'll have folks on the left talking about the corporate media which sort of wants to you know, to keep its hands, you know, off of uh, really sort of scrutinizing, you know, uh, sort of the intense kind of like class of, you know, if you will, establishment yeah. politicians. Are they playing defense for powerful people in yeah. sort of you know, the corporate media, would you say?
1: Right, they are in a variety. So yes, uh, for one, you know, news media relies on advertising dollars. So of mm-hmm. course, if you've got Pfizer spending all of its money on you, you're gonna be careful about criticizing Pfizer, right? But secondly, it's just incestuous in D.C., mm. right. and it's a small town, and everybody knows each other, and they're all running into each other at cocktail parties, and mm. nobody wants to be the person not invited to anything. Mm. So one of the biggest issues is it is a swamp, and it definitely is. It's an incestuous swamp in a way where, you know, you've got uh, politicians or high-level corporate people married to news people who are married to you know, it's politicians married to big money interests married to Mm. news married to, you know, it's, it's all like one big, Mm. um, family. And so they're, they don't want to offend one another. They don't want to, um, like I said, not be invited to the holiday party. They Mm. don't want, they want to continue beneficial relationships because they want to get the next interview. They think that that's going to benefit them. It doesn't. Mm. Um, so, you know that is really the fundamental, I'd say a bigger issue than the advertising dollars
2: mm-hmm.
1: is the 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 familial relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, right. you've got like a perfect example, Andrew Cuomo mm-hmm. and Chris Cuomo, right? That was like mm-hmm. like that, that, that's a showcasing of exactly what I'm talking about that happened publicly that ended up having to have actual consequences, but most of them don't have consequences. Sure. Because so most governor,
0: of them, so, and, and remind us here, so Governor Andrew, Andrew, governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo.
1: Going on Chris Cuomo's and show on CNN on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you know, making jokes with large Q-tips and things. You know, they mm-hmm. Cuomo, Chris Cuomo not doing his job as a reporter. All
0: the time Andrew Cuomo was, uh,
1: I guess we know People were dying in nursing homes. Yes,
0: uh, uh, yes, he yeah, had people dying in nursing homes, but he also, and, and in addition to some personal scandals with respect Pers- to his right. own there was treatment of women in his office and so forth. And so Chris Cuomo, it seems, was actually sort of advising him in terms of how to sort of manage his public response. And softening
1: the blow. I mean, making sure that he got he didn't get the bad press on CNN. Because you know? Chris
0: Cuomo was in a position to to do that.
1: Right. Know, so. so it's that incestuous relationship between the power, the big money interests, and the media that mm-hmm. has caused this issue. Okay. So it is not as much as... Um, You know, it definitely the advertising dollars is a part of it, for sure. Mm. That that definitely plays a big part in it, that the fact that media relies on advertisers. But, you know, if one advertiser goes away, if they've got the numbers, another advertiser comes along. So Mm. it's not as big of an issue as just the relationships inside Mm. of those organizations. They're all friends and family in many cases, and they don't want to criticize each other. They don't go hard on each other. And that is why particularly and that's why we're seeing this in throughout like even uh, you know, organizations like New York Times, Washington Post, everything seems to be liberal now, mm. right?
4: Yeah.
2: Mm.
1: Because it's all become like an imp- <laughs> breeding ground of people marrying people and being involved. And and it's, you know, we're we're seeing this um, play out. It, now people are kind of being held accountable for it a bit, like Kristen and Andrew, um, even Mark Zucker, who was running CNN, yeah. got called mm. out for a relationship with a co-worker and you know, there, but just that uh, those relationships and keeping them like that is, is really causing people to go soft on each
0: other. Mm, I see. Okay. All right. So let me, let me try and do, let me try and do this. Um, now you are somebody who's looked sort of, you know, very, uh, I think very deeply at a lot of avenues of real or perceived corruption in American politics in ways that, you know, I would, I would fully admit like you're, your insights in a lot of particular areas sort of, you know, outstrips outstrips mine. Um, I do think of myself as being an institutionalist uh, in in a real way. I say that not thinking of myself at all as being like an anti-populist. You know, I do feel like democracy is about the will of the people. Um, But I do feel like, you know, you need sort of strong institutions in a complex society uh, because we have to do so many different things. And I think that ideally... We would have people in every sort of part of American society, institutionally speaking, trying to serve a function for the common sort of welfare. Right. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're if you're in the law, you ought to be concerned with justice. If you're in the academy, you ought to be concerned with with truth. If you're in Congress, you ought to be concerned with representing uh, representing the will of the people. Mm -hmm. So let me try and give like, you know, something of a defense of like the institutional classes and well, the establishments and so forth and some sense.
1: But before you do that, just to know, you know, populists mm-hmm. aren't anarchists. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not against institutions. Mm-hmm. It's right. just who's controlling the institutions.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, actually, so let me, so let me, let me challenge you with the question here, because I see what you're saying about the, the relationships that get sticky and problematic, so to speak. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why, so to jump back to the deep state for a second, you know, um, it used to be a period of time in American history where all of these, where, you know, positions within the government were satisfied through political appointments, right? And mm-hmm. you'd have a new administration come in, kick everybody else out who was there before, bring in a whole new crop of people. And with something I think it was you know, Civil Service Act uh, was passed in the late uh, 19th century. The idea was to sort of create sort of a a landscape of positions that weren't subject to the political whims of an incoming or outgoing administration, that you would have people, right, there to sort of operate the machinery of government whose positions weren't so directly tied to the interests of a partisan administration, right? And so, you know, perhaps that opens up the possibility that you're going to have long-serving, you know, bureaucrats, civil servants, people in fixed positions who then develop, you know, relationships with moneyed interests and so forth over time. But uh, what is the alternative to that other than making everybody subject to just sort of, you know, political appointments and so forth and allowing everything to be sort of in a partisan kind of, kind of lens? I mean, how do we, how do we eliminate the the possibility of, you know, uh, of sticky relationships between, you know, entrenched interests and longstanding sort of, you know, government officials um, without just having everything be up to, you know, the political limbs of Donald Trump or Barack Obama or whoever the Democrat or Republican serving the White House may happen to be?
1: Well, I think there's a few ways to go about it. But first is to end the revolving door. So we yeah. have to stop the ability for Congress members or aides or anybody who works in those bureaucratic positions to then go and become lobbyists. I think you have to choose your career path mm. and you're stuck with it, okay. you know. So yeah. I think that that, you know, and I, I understand that that people like to have their freedom to be able to go and do what mm. they want. And um, after they've served in a government position, go and and work, uh, you know, maybe they want the freedom to work for a lobbying firm, but it's not creating freedom mm. for the American people. So. Mm. We need to end the ability for that. You have to choose your track. Are you going to be a lobbyist? or Are you going to be working in the government? Mm. Take your pick. You don't get to have both. So that needs to end. I think that would solve a huge amount of the problem Mm. uh, right there.
0: Would you also prohibit people with, you know, uh, let's say, who formerly were occupying a corporate position in a certain energy, a certain uh, industry, let's say, like maybe the energy sector, you know, not being allowed to serve in a regulatory, you know, body that, you know, sort of, you know, surveils the or that that's that's meant to sort of rein in the energy sector or people who have worked for big banks you know not being allowed to you know then go into uh, operate as as regulators because they're coming out of the energy with the revolving door be shut in that in that instance as well because you can always argue that you know people in uh, people who are operating the regulatory mechanisms of government might benefit from having had some experience within the industries. And that is sort of a practical reason for there being right. a little bit of back and forth between the two.
2: Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, you could certainly make that argument. I think that when it comes to the regulation, the bigger problem isn't people coming from the industries. It's so much as the politicians are having these industries as their donors. Okay. So okay. if you are on the 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 committee to regulate banking, you shouldn't be then going to fundraisers where there's a bunch of bankers giving your can your your campaign a bunch of money okay. right so you shouldn't mm-hmm. be allowed to take any donations whatsoever from any entity that is in the that is connected to the industry you are regulating
2: mm-hmm.
1: so the regulation comes from the politicians so that that i would say is mm-hmm. that funding needs to end you mm-hmm. cannot go and and seek out massive amounts of funding from the industry you're regulating,
0: so you think that campaign finance reform is a necessary part yes. of strengthening the credibility of our institutions because it would help affect that separation between the money classes and the elected officials, yep. and therefore the people they point the the point that they appoint the policies that they enact.
1: Yeah, we need to make sure that our politicians are working in the best interest of the American people, mm-hmm. and part of that does include businesses and corporations. Of course, you know we need to have a strong economy, so they need to be represented as well but that's why it needs to be neutral it needs mm. to be the politician the representative is seeing things from all angles getting information from those career you know aides that are there mm. through administration after administration who then just gives advisement and says here's the information mm. you know this is what this this is what would potentially happen if you put this regulation on these corporations this is what would happen if you didn't and mm. this is how it benefits the people this is how it hurts the people this is how it benefits the corporation this is how it hurts the corporation and then the representative would hopefully make a decision based on what is actually in the best interest of the people in the country, rather than just representing their donors because they're looking for their next campaign, um, you know, finance opportunity so that they can continue to remain in power. They're, right now, they're just paying attention to how am I going to get reelected? Mm, right. Okay. So maybe even term, you know, term limits is definitely another another option. uh, But I don't think that solves the problem because a lot of times what happens is these politicians then go and they revolve into a lobbying position or sit on the board of one of these companies. Mm. And then they go and they call their friends who they served with in Congress for years. And they say, hey, you know, now I'm on the board of Raytheon. Uh, (laughs) How about that military package?
0: And that doesn't really look good to anybody. And yet it's the type of thing that sort of continues, continues to happen. Right. Um, Yeah. Because you have, as you said, you know, you have people who operate on these rungs of society. They know each other well and so forth. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people, people in industries, I think that they do oftentimes look at themselves as providing sort of, you know, wealth and adding value back into society and so forth. And that their interests maybe, uh, are, you know, sort of such that through these special relationships, they have the opportunity to sort of, you know, not that they're in business to be idealistic or, you know, to necessarily serve the American people, but that there's some justification for it. But at the same time, it makes it very difficult for people to sort of trust the culture of government when these are the relationships that kind right. of, you know, animate what's what's going on. So you've been shining a light on that basically yeah. your whole career.
1: Right. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. since I've been doing my independent uh, media mm-hmm. stuff. But Also, I don't think it's a bad idea to maybe like eliminate Washington, D.C. in a way,
0: (laughs) Uh, you know, that's not a radical (laughs) statement.
1: What I mean is we're we're living in a new era, right, where Mm -hmm. we have now with the covid pandemic, we've learned Mm -hmm. that people can work remotely. I mean, look, Mm -hmm. I was broadcasting. I mean, I was an anchor on the hill that is based in D.C., the studios in D.C. And I'm in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and I was still, you know, it it didn't hurt the views at all as far as Mm -hmm. me not being there. Uh, So we can all work remotely. I think that there is maybe something to be said for these politicians, these bureaucrats, these uh, getting away from each other Mm -hmm. and not having the ability to mingle and marry and have, like I said, those incestuous relationships between the industries.
0: So tell, tell me, how does that manifest in or does that does that problem show up? In our response to COVID nineteen, what was what, what were your big beefs with the way that was handled? You know, either through the public health establishment in general, the state of California in in particular, um, you know, what, is the establishment class sort of you know uh, explicitly to blame for problems that that fell out from that? Because I think that many people feel that you know Anthony Anthony Fauci and the uh, and the larger health establishment we were following the science in efforts to control an unprecedented problem and an unprecedented threat uh, to the literal physical health of not just the American people, but uh-huh. you know, global, global society. Why is that analysis wrong? Because
1: they weren't following any of the science at all.
0: Hi, I'm here with my good brother, Wilk Wilkinson. Wilk, how you doing, man?
4: Doing very well, John. How are you?
0: I'm good, my friend. I am good, and so uh, we uh, are going to show a quick clip uh, in just a second uh, between a fascinating Braver Angels debate uh, that we had featuring uh, none other than Dr. Francis Collins, uh, uh, chief science advisor to President Biden, formerly uh, head of the National Institute uh, of Health, uh, and and yourself uh, uh, as somebody who's been a bit critical of the public health establishment, but who is also a leader at Brave Angels. Will could you do me a favor and just tell folks a little bit about kind of where you come from politically right off the bat? How would you define your describe your politics really fast?
4: Yeah, I I can certainly do that. I I'm a, you know, I consider myself a constitutional conservative, uh very much an originalist in 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 a lot of ways. Uh, I'm a Christian, I'm a family man. I got, got a wife and children and you know, grew up in the Midwest, so Live with a lot of those, you know, traditional conservative uh, hometown values. And and that's kind of how I uh, how I operate when it comes to politics.
0: There you go. Down home type of guy that tells us something. And uh, tell us a little bit about your work with Braver Angels and what do you do as a part of Braver Angels community organization? Uh, What uh, what uh, what sort of uh, or are you are you rowing uh, on the ship that we're all on?
4: Well John I'm I'm part of the We the People's Project uh leadership committee. Mm. The We the People's Project started out of out of the Working People's Project and and it it kind of trans uh transformed into the We the People's Project here and what it was was it's a um, it's kind of a project within Braver Angels where It gives people the opportunity, people who who are seldom spoken to, but often spoken of. So it gives those people a voice at the microphone. It gives them people an opportunity to speak their mind, get their feelings out there, get their 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 opinions and their mindsets heard when they otherwise probably wouldn't
3: have.
0: That's right. And we know that the voices of working class Americans, like you said, are often overlooked in our discourse. And so that's a big reason why at Brave Angels, we do the best that we can to uplift folks uh, coming from a working background, because we know that they are driving uh, so much of American society and need to be a major part of the conversation. And I think that one thing that's true of a lot of working class Americans, uh, Will, is that a lot of folks are skeptical of sort of the political establishment in general, and I think many working folks were also very skeptical about sort of the uh, public health establishments and the government's response to COVID-19. Did you share any of that skepticism?
4: Oh, absolutely. I've been outspoken uh, about it since since the very beginning. I've been talking about it on my podcast and and uh, other special recordings and and different things for, oh, probably... I think the first time I ever recorded anything being outspoken against the government's response to the pandemic was probably May of 2020. I mean, it was it was very early on. And uh, yeah, I I share that skeptic, uh, skepticism wholeheartedly, John. It's it's been one of those things I look at and and I, I may not look at it the way that that some do with with, you know, the kind of animosity thinking that other people had some kind of ulterior motive. But I, I definitely think that the government's response to this pandemic has probably one been one of the largest and, and most um most brutal mistakes that our government has ever made and, and, and most most heinous intrusions upon individual liberty that's ever happened in the history of our country.
0: And yet, in spite of that intense, uh, in spite of that intense feeling, uh, you were willing to talk to and communicate with and I think kind of establish a bit of a friendship uh, at this point. Uh, with Doctor Francis Collins, who I mean, really, let's let's face it, Doctor uh, Fr- Collins is is one of the leading figures in the public health establishment, and we're about to see a clip of the two of you uh, in in dialogue as part of one of our Brave Angels debates. But what is it meant for you to be able to sort of have a rapport with Doctor Doctor Collins? Do you consider him to be sort of you know a a, a fair dealer uh, on this on this uh, question? I mean, how is it how has it impacted you to be able to sort of Have a bit of a interaction with somebody who obviously was in a position of responsibility for public health at the highest level.
4: Well, quite honestly, John, I I think of Doctor Francis Collins now as a dear friend. Him and I have had several conversations since the beginning of this project. Uh, Something, I mean, a complete honor for for somebody like me uh, to to be able to get involved in a project so closely with somebody like Doctor Francis Collins, somebody who led the NIH. Um, he's obviously got an incredible history and the things that he's done for the medical community health and and just humankind all together Mm. has been absolutely incredible. And yeah, do I consider him a fair dealer? Absolutely. Um, we, we disagree vehemently upon some of the things that, that have happened since the onset of this pandemic, but, uh, coming at this from completely different sides of the topic. And being able to enter into that conversation and completely different backgrounds, but but to develop a friendship and and it's been absolutely incredible. And uh, we still don't agree on on most things with with regard to the government's response to the pandemic. But uh, there are some things that we found common ground on. But most importantly, we found the common humanity between the two of us and how we interact and how we have those discussions.
0: Well, it's going to defy people's expectations to imagine that people starting from as far apart the chasm of disagreement as you two are when it comes to these sorts of issues can find their way to this deeper level of human trust and even common ground on some of the issues that, that really matter. But then again, defying those sorts of expectations is what we do at Braver Angels. So without further ado, let's roll the clip.
5: The personal story about my own experience dates back to November of 2020. That was, of course, in the throes of the worst of COVID-19, where we were desperately needing interventions, therapeutics, and especially vaccines. Many of us working 100-hour weeks were doing everything possible to accelerate the process of developing and then rigorously testing the vaccines that might save lives. And there was a certain evening where the results of a very large-scale trial Uh, of the vaccines were going to be revealed because they had been blinded up until that point. I didn't dare to really hope that the results would be all that good because most vaccines fail, but when the results were unveiled, the efficacy of this vaccine turned out to be 95%, well in excess of anything that any of us had dared to hope for, and the safety record was remarkably good. And I will tell you quite honestly, I cried that night and I also gave thanks because this was an answer to prayer. And I thought there in November of 2020, we're going to lick this virus. We're going to be able to send it packing. And this, I think, will be seen as one of the great science triumphs of our generation because this happened in just 11 months. But then what happened? People did get vaccinated, but a lot of other
3: people didn't. I look first at everything through the lens of liberty. and you know, because of liberty and people's desire for liberty, we created here in the United States the best country that has ever, that has produced more freedom, more opportunity, more greatness for more people than any other country on this planet in the history of mankind. And that can only be done, that can only be done with a government that trusts the people and the people trusting the government. Okay. So with that said, a lot of people have have said at times I may be an anti-government person. I'm not anti-government. I'm anti-big, over-intrusive government. And, And that's what we saw during this pandemic. During this pandemic, we saw the government lay down a heavy hand on the people of this country in a way that they've never done at any other time in our history.
5: Let's go ahead and move to questions. I see Dr. Collins. Go ahead and unmute and ask a question to me. Uh, Madam Chair, uh, the speaker, my friend, Oak, uh, has made a very good point about the way in which public health recommendations have sometimes been applied in ways that did great economic harm, harm uh, to individuals. Um, does the speaker think that was primarily because the public health system was misguided or that the politicians uh, took their recommendations and applied them in an irrational way. All
0: right. Go ahead, Wilk.
3: I do believe that the government, and the politicians, and the media in large part played a huge part in mis um, misapplying, I, I can't remember the word, uh, uh, the former uh, speaker used, but used used that advice and counsel, and used it in in, uh, in in a lot of times. I believe they used it in a nefarious way, uh, very much so on the media's part and, and certain politicians. Absolutely,
5: I do think a lot of what we have been wrestling with when it comes to public health is this balance, as was brought out in the questionnaire, uh, between individual rights and community needs, and this also comes down to this question of. What is freedom, Uh, is it all about rights or is it also about responsibility? And what a public health system has to do is to try to figure out how to balance that, oftentimes in the face of very uncertain uh, parameters where the data is incomplete. You almost have to figure out what's the value of a human life. If you thought that by imposing something that is gonna cause a lot of people unhappiness, uh, you could save a few hundred lives, wouldn't you feel like you had to do it anyway? But of course you should ask the community whether they agree with you on that and not just decide that you know. Uh, That's where the tension comes in. And I I don't know if that's completely been captured in a lot of the debates about the way in which public health decisions have been made, even lockdowns. Remember Donald Trump supported a lockdown because it was thought to be in spring of 2020, the only way that we were gonna save potentially tens of thousands of lives turned out not to be very effective. We know that now, but we didn't know that then.
1: I mean, they actually threw out their own science from the window. I mean, we have so many times Anthony Fauci saying statements like previous infection, Mm. giving natural immunity. That has always been a known thing. But suddenly with this one virus, it suddenly wasn't a thing.
2: Mm.
1: You know, this one time, like, how is that? That his entire career as somebody who is pushing you know, how old is he now, 85 years old? Uh, how could somebody have their entire career talking about previous infection, allowing for natural immunity, and then suddenly this time it doesn't? Mm-hmm. Or saying previously that masks were not as effective, cloth masks, unless you're wearing an N95 or a KN95, that they weren't as effective as, you know, and then suddenly, no, it's the, it's the end all be all, and you must, or else, mm-hmm. um, we must be masking children when they go to preschool, you know, they didn't even follow their own science. They actually disregarded their own science. And that was something that I think turned the alarm bells on for many of us that said something else is going on here. How could you possibly counter counter, contradict everything you've said for the last 35 years? Mm -hmm. And suddenly this time it's not the same. And so
0: it's, it's the something else part that I'm, that I'm curious to, to hear about. I mean, look, I would not put myself forward as somebody in a position to speak authoritatively on the science. So we'll get yeah. folks in the comments though who right. will eagerly weigh in right on, on the on the claims that you just made. But I guess my question here is: Is are you asserting that there's like an incentive problem here too that's similar to some yes. of the other things we've talked? So that's the part I want to get to because, I, I, you know, hypothetically speaking, uh, Fauci could be right or wrong um, on you know some of the particular matters of the science and so forth. But if if there are corrupt relationships or just, you know, problematic relationships here that are affecting any of our institutions and particularly our public health establishments ability to, in a disinterested way, pursue the well-being of the American people because their interests are going in other directions, then that's something that, you know, we should be able to talk about and recognize. And of course, it has to it has to do with the science, but it's also just a, a topic unto itself for us right. to wrap our hands around.
1: Yeah. Right, well, I mean, when you look at it, the response here in the United States, for example, just going to that natural immunity discussion mm-hmm. and how that was so anti-science, here in the United States only, that's the other thing. This is not something that they, they were not doing that in Europe. In Europe, if you had previous COVID infection, you had your COVID passport. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, they just said, no, that doesn't count here, you have to get the shot no matter what, well, here we are, we have politicians, we have Anthony Fauci's um, research, we have much of the research at Johns Hopkins, much of the research at all of these well-known scientific institutions that are funded by outside interests like Bill Gates. Mm. So you have Bill and Melinda Gates. Their foundation has a disproportionate level of influence in our medical system Mm. because they fund so much of the scientific research. Mm. And vaccines are a particular pet project for Bill Gates in particular. He's been hot on vaccines for a very long time. Mm. So when you've got your major funder saying, I really like vaccines and we're gonna be really pushing for vaccines Mm. and we're putting all of our eggs in the vaccine basket um, and people are just catching COVID anyway and then those people are saying, well now I got natural immunity according to everybody else in Europe, by the way. Mm. And then here in the United States they say, nope, doesn't count, you still have to get the vaccine. That shows, that's that's a glaringly obvious showcasing of the fact that the money has infiltrated our system to a point where they threw science out the window. Mm -hmm. And they just said to us, you do what we say or else. And there is no, there's no other way around it. No one else in Europe did that. Why is that? Is the science so wrong? Mm -hmm. I mean, how is it that everyone else in the world recognized natural immunity except for the United States and Canada Mm -hmm. of all, you know, and maybe Australia too, just Western areas. I mean, does that make scientific sense? Are the scientists that bad in Germany? Right. You know, so that, what, what is it with that? Um, Here's the question. Yeah.
0: Because I think that, you know, it would be, by the, by the way, you, you are, you are going to be invited back. Let me, let me, just, <laughs> let me just guarantee you're here. Um, because no, and, and, and the reason I say that is just because I think a lot of what's missing are conversations and, you know, at Braver Angels, we exist sort of, try and facilitate this that allow for us to take all of the various sorts of, you know, claims that we have about what things that people are saying that are wrong or possibly even ill motivated, whether it's on the basis of, you know, sort of, you know, political interest or tribalism or what have you, and, and show people, you know, in the back and forth, like how these conversations, you know, uh, sort of bring the points together in a way to where we can actually see what's true because we're comparing perspectives rather than just right. having all the conversations in a vacuum. So one thing, for instance, that we've that we've done is um, we've had uh, uh, Dr. Francis Collins uh, engage in some programming with us where he's talking to skeptics, uh, people who are you know, within Braver Angels community who do not trust the public health establishment right, right and who have questions that they don't hear being answered right, by people in a position of authority. And so we're trying to sort of open up some space right, for people who are good faith skeptics and people who, you know, we certainly we certainly hope are good, good faith, uh, you know, sort of authorities within the establishment, although you might be skeptical, right, about that. Uh, Nevertheless, trying to open up dialogues that lead to transparency. And so I want to ask you in that spirit, you know, you didn't get the opportunity to speak directly to to Dr. Fauci. And I felt like, you know, whether I agree or disagree or fall somewhere in the middle in terms of some of your uh, critiques that that would have been a very useful conversation because you had established yourself with credibility, right? Uh, with your followers and you've got a very large audience and it's not just on the left, it's folks on the right too. You're actually kind of a bipartisan voice right, <laughs> right. In, your, in your populism, you know? Um, it would have been an opportunity for somebody who people listen to, to channel their skepticism directly towards Anthony Fauci in a way that would have given him an opportunity if he's got the answers to the questions to sort of like, help us people's doubts a little bit. And unfortunately didn't get, uh, we didn't get that, that opportunity. Um, you know, um, I, I mentioned sort of before, like, you know, this concern over the idea of sort of silencing dissent or, or not allowing people to sort of scrutinize folks in positions of power. Is that one of the major failings here? Not just that things happen that you might disagree with, but that people like you perhaps, you know, didn't quite get the opportunity. To, le- to to level the criticisms because maybe there was a desire to limit the opportunity for, for scrutinizing the policies oh, yeah. and people in power.
1: Yeah, I mean, people were deplatformed, censored. I mean, mm-hmm. my first videos when the pandemic first hit and I was doing segments on the lab leak theories, mm-hmm. um, I did a segment on myocarditis. They were removed and they were censored. Now we can talk about those things mm-hmm. and now uh, major outlets talk about those things. But when I first put them out there, they were literally removed uh, and it was called, it was labeled misinformation. Mm. And now it is, you know, the myocarditis, for example, is actually a warning on the actual vaccines. Mm. But that was misinformation when I reported on it. So Mm. we definitely, um, you know, that is, I think, the biggest failing of the pandemic was the silencing of any sort of dissent. Anybody who went against was demonized called conspiracy theorists, um, whack jobs, if they were saying, hey, ivermectin showed to have some promise from an Australian study, Mm. that was early on. They were called, you know, oh, you're you're believing in horse medicine, horse Mm. dewormer. Um, There was just...
0: We remember the conversation between Joe Rogan and Sanjay Gupta following some of the CNN coverage where they said Joe Rogan was... What, taking They said he took horse, horse dewormer,
1: he horse did not medicine, right? take horse dewormer, mm-hmm. he took a medication for human beings, mm-hmm. it wasn't for horses, yes, ivermectins also given to horses in a horse form, he took a mm-hmm. for people form, mm-hmm. and yet CNN smeared him and said that he had taken horse dewormer. Yeah.
0: Um, Now, many, many scientists, uh, I mean, many, you know, public health uh, officials and folks with a great deal more expertise than that I have, certainly, you know, will will cast a lot of doubt over the actual sort of evidentiary basis for the effectiveness of ivermectin. But what was cool about the 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 Rogan CNN sort of controversy was that that was followed by a very rare conversation that he had with Sanjay Gupta, where they were able to sort of go back and forth, you know. But, but that just doesn't happen very often. And I No, get- and
1: Sanjay got completely, you know, raked over the coals for appearing on Joe Rogan. Right. And right. then he went back on CNN and continued to uh, basically well, go back to the, what he was saying before about Joe Rogan.
0: And, and, and maybe that, you know, that gets back to sort of the, the institutional pressures and so forth that folks in certain environments operate uh, under. And I know that, you know, I and certainly you have a lot to say about that, but I do want to sort of like, you know, bring this conversation to, uh you know, to 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 an end point here, maybe on a note of hope that that type of thing, those types of real conversations are still possible. Yeah. Right? And it's hard to to make it happen, perhaps on the highest level. But the amazing thing about what you've done and what we're seeking to do here at Braver Angels uh, is that, you know, through, I think, our own independent ability to sort of create networks and platforms and so forth to sort of raise the voices of the American people, um, raise our own voices. Right. Uh, we actually don't have to, don't necessarily have to wait for like the institutions and the establishment and so forth to give us permission to have the conversations we want to have, we need to have. And hopefully, you know, that can create a, a culture of interaction, you know, That allows us to challenge each other, not from the vantage point of wanting to destroy each other politically, but to actually just get to what the truth is, right? So we can hold each other accountable for the sake of, you know, for the sake of the American people and to be able to solve, you know, real, real problems. So I guess, I guess my my last sort of question to you here is, you know, um, if we were to do that would there be greater hope for a society in which we could actually trust our institutions again if people in positions of power were to not be so afraid of perhaps some of the criticism that they would get or some of the hard questions that they would get to be able to engage people you know would that would that make it easier for us to move in a direction of depolarizing america and getting back to the point where people trust their institutions again
1: I mean, we definitely need to have conversation with one another and Mm -hmm. to learn from one another. I would say more than like holding each other accountable, I would say learning from one another and Mm -hmm. listening to each other. Um, And we don't have that opportunity as much because unfortunately, the mechanisms for getting our voices out there are controlled Mm -hmm. by the big tech companies that decide on their, you know, quote unquote, community guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, we are unfortunately beholden to that. Um, and we do have to tiptoe around their rules. There's mm-hmm. no way around that. So, but I do think that there's, there is, when when all of this happened and there was a lot of censorship going on and there was a lot of shutting down, like YouTube, for example, shutting down like videos like mine and so many people and deplatforming platforming so many people who had questions about not just the pandemic, but a variety of different subjects. Um, other companies cropped up like Rumble Right. So now Rumble is growing really fast because it's a platform that is not silencing those conversations. They're not silencing the questioning, the debate, the conversation, the, you know, what people are thinking. If they're not going with the establishment line, they're not shutting down that conversation. So we're seeing rapid growth of that platform, for example, and many other platforms like it. And we're also seeing the establishment Um, those organizations shifting. You know, we're seeing CNN, believe it or not, I mean, I can't believe it, sometimes I turn on CNN lately and I'm surprised they're actually pushing back, they're asking questions, Mm. they're pushing back on the, um, like I watched um, one of the anchors question Rochelle Walensky and she was actually pressing her and Mm. pushing back and that was something that wasn't happening before. Well, that change happened because CNN saw that it failed with CNN Plus. People mm-hmm. are not trust trusting of CNN anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in it as a true media organization. Um, they are needing to regain the trust. And the way they're doing it is they are saying, we need to be uh, less in one direction. We need to actually open up conversation and actually push back. It, it, then it's, it's scary to me that reporters are so malleable that they could just take barking orders from somebody at the top and then they behave the way mm-hmm. they're supposed to, whether they're supposed to lean one way or be more or push back. The next day or something, and look, you know, we also saw my time at the Hill for an entire year, where a, a corporate media company allowed me to push back every single day. They allowed me to push back.
0: It's true, and, and 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 a lot of people were struck by that because I think that people weren't used to seeing seeing that, you know. Yes, in a in a reputable sort of corporate, you know, owned. Uh, media platform, a voice like yours, you know, populist, radical, according to, according to some folks, <laughs> uh, but sharp and, and, and pointed, uh, you know, really asking, uh, really asking questions with, uh, with the directness that people weren't used to hearing in a platform like that.
1: And I was laughed at by my co-anchors. You know, mm. I was often laughed at. I was ridiculed. They tried, you know, there were times when they would go to management and talk about me and say, mm. we got to get rid of this conspiracy theory. She's bad for the brand. Mm. And ultimately, at the end, one year in, they all shifted and they were all saying the same things I was saying mm. because I wasn't the one who was wrong all along. I mean, that is just the reality of it. As I was actually following the science, I was following the data and I was reporting on it like a person should if you're in the news business. Right. And I and, and sadly, that was met with laughter and ridicule by a lot of others in the news business who ultimately are now the ones being sort of laughed at and ridiculed for being so wrong and just being willing to spout the establishment line or what they're told without really truly looking into it, doing their job as a reporter, as an investigator, as a news person, mm-hmm. truly digging into that data. But we are seeing that, you know, there, at least for that year. Now things changed. Ownership and management changed. I think that's had a lot to do with why I, uh, why you know, I was prohibited from interviewing Fauci. Mm. Um, I think they moved more in establishment direction, unfortunately. But there was a, a window where, and, and to be honest with you. Part of it was because there was no management for that year there. You know, Mm. it was like.
0: (laughs) I see you got in with the babysitter. I got uh, it right. Yeah, there was. was It was.
1: Yeah, it was really, you know, it was in flux. The old Mm. the old owner had sold it. A new owner had come in, but the new owner hadn't really quite taken over yet. They didn't Mm. really know what to do with it quite yet. So there Mm. was a period of transition Mm. and I was in that corporate media space during a period of transition. And I basically got to take advantage of that transition when yeah, the adults weren't in the room. Gotcha. And so I got to say whatever I wanted to say.
0: Well, Kim, you and I met originally five or six years ago or so. You know, we're not that old.
2: You
1: know?
0: <laughs> um, And I met you in a debate uh, with my friend Nick Hancoff, who was yeah. a leader of the Republican Liberty Caucus in Los Angeles. Um, And the very first thing uh, I learned about you was that this is somebody who's not afraid to give her opinion, but she's also not afraid to defend it. You know, and that she's somebody who's willing to do so in a way that you know, really is fiercely uh, defensive of of the truth as she sees it, but without trying to make it personal. You know, and, and Nick the, is
1: great too, by the way. You know mm-hmm. that was that was um, when we did meet, and Nick and I debated each other at mm-hmm. that. On I think it was um, it was uh, an abortion debate, right? It was a women's, yeah, it was, That's right. and mm-hmm. he was on one side, and I was on the other of that. And you know, what's interesting is that Nick he's reached out to me several times since mm-hmm. then, and we've we've chatted a few times, and. You know he's also one of those people that can that bridges the divide mm. that he when he agrees with you, he's willing to say, "I right. agree with you on this, and you're doing a great job." Right. And he's reached out to me over the last couple of years during the pandemic to say, i th- you're doing awesome. I mm. really glad to see you, you know, getting out there and and telling you know <laughs> and yeah. representing a different side that mm-hmm. wasn't being represented at all in media. And so, you know, there is this um there are people coming together from both mm. sides that are truly. Uh, wanting to have the conversation and in agreement and wanting to see more, uh, just more of the ideas out there. And a lot of people tell me, I don't agree with you, but I like hearing what mm-hmm. you have to say. Right. And we should be able to have more of that.
0: That's right. Some people are always looking for an end point to conversations in our politics. But honestly, in democracy, the debate always continues. And the question yeah. is, is as the conversation uh, evolves, uh, are we evolving too? So I hope we can continue the conversation with you,
1: yeah, Tim Iverson. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank
0: you for joining me.
3: So the government is bamboozling both sides. So it's going to have to be the people to come together to push forward toward a better government.
5: All righty. And with that, Mr. Newsom is thanked. I think we can all agree with that. Absolutely. And I just want to commend uh, Mr. Newsom on the brave angel spirit there. Um, I appreciate that. And uh, it's a good thing for all of us to follow. So, I'm now looking for a speech in the affirmative, and I think we will go to Ms. Iverson.
1: Kim, go ahead and unmute yourself. You have four minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, guys, so much for having me. Um, uh, I'm Kim Iverson. So, I am uh, I am mostly seen on YouTube. I do a show about politics and foreign policy and whatnot. So, uh, talk a lot about cancel culture and censorship, quite a bit. So. Um, I didn't really prepare anything, but listening to everybody speak, this has been very interesting of a conversation. And I think a big question that has to be asked regarding cancel culture is, what is the goal of cancel culture? What are we trying to uh, accomplish with it? And I think that it boils down to two things from what I gather, and one which is make society safer. Right, by changing a person or an organization's behavior. That seems to be the goal of cancel culture. Or uh, another goal seems to be to try and attempt to change a person's thoughts and opinions. And I think the failure of cancel culture is on that second one in particular with trying to change a person's thoughts and opinions. No one is going to change their thoughts and opinions simply by being bullied or by being pressured or by losing their job. We're not going to see people suddenly change their minds in that way. I like to say what um, there was a great... Um, book written by uh, a scholar, Loretta Ross, I believe is her name. She called it calling rather than call out culture. She says we should call in, which is rather than trying to bully or use hate to combat hate, we should instead use love to combat that uh, bigotry or to combat um, people who might not have you know a, a, a good viewpoint, so instead of going after them and calling them out or trying to cancel them, instead trying to sit down with them, having conversations and trying to get them to change their minds, using love as the impetus of this. Um, and I think what it really comes down to now I, I think that there is a benefit to the idea that you could you could use certain behaviors in order to make society safer by changing a person's behavior or an organization's behavior. I think there's something to that. Um, And I don't think any society in existence has gone without some form of this. I think every society in the world uses some form of cancel culture. Ideally, a more liberal society would use less of it. And so um, I think that the question that we have to ask ourselves is what. Do we consider dangerous because that seems to be the fundamental driver of cancel culture as a person saying, "Well, I am making my society safer because your opinion is dangerous, and therefore I need to somehow get rid of you. I need to put you in jail in some way, whether that be driving you out of my community, getting you fired from your job, um, or somehow getting everybody to shame you. Um, I think that you know we've we've reached this point where we've said now your opinion is dangerous rather than just your behavior. And, um, and I think we need to distinguish between what is truly dangerous thought and what isn't dangerous thought. Um, a personal example, my dad told me about this story. I'm from Boise, Idaho, grew up, and it's pretty predominantly white. And it was more so, although I'm half Asian, but when my dad was growing up, it was really more white. And he was saying that the first time a black family moved into his neighborhood, somebody had actually gone to their front lawn and burned a cross in their front lawn. And what resulted in this was in the sixties. And what resulted from that was the community of Boise did not tolerate that type of behavior, viewed it as dangerous and ran that person out of town who did that um, to that family. And so you know, I think in an example like that, we do need to ha- be able to run people out of town. We do need to be able to put people in sort of a jail in, in a way when something is not illegal. But at the same time, when it's a thought or an idea like J.K. Rowling, for example, an idea that should be discussed, we have to decide how da- what is dangerous. Is it more dangerous to cancel and not have the discussion? Or is her opinion so dangerous we must completely shut it down? Thank you, Alrighty. Madam Chair.
5: Yes, very interesting. We'll take a first speech in the affirmative from Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Collins, go ahead and unmute. You have five minutes. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Good evening to all of you. Yes, I am here in my personal capacity. I'm gonna tell two stories, but also try to make some points from my perspective as a physician and a scientist who had the opportunity to lead the National Institutes of Health for 12 years. The personal story about my own experience dates back to November of 2020. That was, of course, in the throes of the worst of COVID-19 where we were desperately needing interventions, therapeutics, and especially vaccines. Many of us working 100-hour weeks were doing everything possible to accelerate the process of developing and then rigorously testing the vaccines that might save lives. And there was a certain evening where the results of a very large-scale trial Uh, of the vaccines were going to be revealed because they had been blinded up until that point. I didn't dare to really hope that the results would be all that good because most vaccines fail. But when the results were unveiled, the efficacy of this vaccine turned out to be 95%, well in excess of anything that any of us had dared to hope for. And the safety record was remarkably good. And I will tell you quite honestly, I cried that night, and I also gave thanks because this was an answer to prayer. And I thought there in November of 2020, we're going to lick this virus. We're going to be able to send it packing. And this, I think, will be seen as one of the great science triumphs of our generation because this happened in just 11 months. But then what happened? People did get vaccinated, but a lot of other people didn't. My next personal story comes from August of 2021. Not that long ago. It's about a young man named Josh Tidmore, 36 years old. He and his wife, Christina, in Alabama, wondered whether they should sign up for this vaccine or not. They were members of an evangelical church founded by Christina's grandfather. And there was a lot of skepticism about whether this was something that was really important or not. And they were young and healthy. And so they decided to pass this up, especially after they saw some social media postings that made it sound like maybe this wasn't safe after all. Unfortunately then, they both got sick. Christina got well pretty quickly, but Josh got sicker and sicker, ending up in the ICU. And then sadly, with a great uh, tragic experience here, uh, his wife had to watch him uh, succumb to this disease at just age 36, uh, leaving her with two small children. Christina, seeing what had happened, looking at the evidence about vaccines, then became really an ambassador to try to get others to take advantage of this only to find that many people attacked her uh, for the information she was trying to share, including people in their own church. The Kaiser Family Foundation has estimated there are 160,000 people like Josh who have lost their lives since last June because of decisions not to take advantage of a life-saving vaccine. That's a pretty concrete figure, 162,000 people in graveyards. And many of them are evangelical Christians, as was the case here. I'm an evangelical Christian. This is particularly troubling. Uh, After all, the words from Jesus, the truth will set you free. Naively, I thought all we had to do was figure out the scientific truth, tell people about it. It would be embraced and people would do the things that the truth would tell you to do. But obviously, we failed. 50 million people in the United States are still unvaccinated even now. So what happened here? Public health officials had the truth, but they didn't have the trust. We, as public health officials, I don't think fully explain the nature of science, that science is always looking to try to get better, that knowledge is always going to increase, and that means recommendations are going to change as new discoveries happen and as this virus evolved from its original form to Delta and now to Omicron. On top of that, suspicion of the government, social media, misinformation and disinformations. And a lot of politics overtook the truth, making it hard for honorable people to figure out what to believe. Oh, my phone and so the truth basically uh, had a hard time competing uh, with all those other messages. What do I think happened here? Well, clearly, public health does need to be based on science. I will defend that in terms of the resolution that we have. and. I also think, though, that that kind of decision-making about public health should be as inclusive as possible with people who understand what the consequences are going to be of those decisions. And for that, we need to empower community voices. We did some of that during COVID in this terrible rush at NIH. We had something called the Community Engagement Alliance that brought into this effort to share information community leaders who had the trust of those communities more than some old white guy like me who works for the government would be likely to be able to achieve. Pastors, I spent a lot of my time on podcasts with pastors trying to encourage leaders of the faith also to share this information with their flocks. So I support the resolution about the need for public health decisions to be made by experts, but we need to be more inclusive. And finally, the communication of the message it needs to engage trusted voices who have the ability Uh, to put across messages to people who will look at those particular individuals and say, yeah, that's somebody I can believe in, somebody I can trust. Truth is not enough. We've got to have trust. Thank you.